St. James. Glad you guys are here. Welcome too to the people who are watching on the live stream right now. Uh, glad that you guys are uh, hanging out with us and watching. And um, 
Announcements, you can read them for yourself. They're all uh, pretty much normal. Everything is on today. Uh, normal schedule, youth confirmation after this, evening prayer at 5.30. Uh, everything's on schedule for this week in terms of Bible studies and uh, youth group. A couple things that you should notice is the Mosaic Baby Bottle campaign update and also a VBS, which we're going to do as we're kind of easing back into a normal VBS. We're going to do a one-day VBS this year, July 11th. That's a couple weeks from now. Um, uh, you can read the announcement about the times and uh, the activities. If you can help out with that, there's a sign-up sheet on the, uh, in the narthex as you leave. Uh, feel free to check that out and then sign up where you can participate. If you have any questions, talk to Jen Weber. Uh, she's in charge of that this year. Um, new members class, uh, we're going to start that up in July. Anybody who wants to be involved with that, please let me know, and uh, I can get you information about that. Okay, so the youth group went on a mission trip uh, last week and uh, just reported back to us in Bible study. Uh, for those of you who weren't there, uh, Katie Kylie Van is going to come and uh, give us a short update on what happened. So we went on a mission trip to northern Minnesota, Callaway, on the White Earth Reservation. I'm originally from there, and my dad was a pastor there about 25 years ago for a little over a decade, and that's where I grew up. So my parents are the connecting piece between these two um, churches. And so <clears throat> last time I was up there, a number of years ago, I was looking through the newspaper, and in the newspaper, there were, the, the obituary section was almost all teenagers because there's such a huge suicide epidemic. And so I prayed and asked God if there was a way that he could use me to help the community. And sure enough, we were able to take our youth group and start making connections. And this trip was really about making connections with the local community and building a trust relationship, mostly through physical labor. So we did a variety of painting projects. Um, we met with local residents and met their needs in whatever they were. A lot of them were elders of the community. We um, chopped wood for them. We washed their windows, whatever service they needed. And then we worked with local leaders in the community to clean up and things of that nature. We also were able to distribute, I think it was a total of 350-ish uh, blessing bags that had hygiene kits in it as well as like toys, sidewalk chalk, um, Bible verse pins and bracelets and things like that to kids in Natawash and to children at the Boys and Girls Club in Callaway. And we were also able to make a connection with the Boys and Girls Club in Callaway to the end of going back and starting a VBS next year and working directly with the kids. So basically the idea would be that we would go through the reservation um, with the locals and draw kids in. We even have a, a friend of mine has a bus um, in Callaway and he would be able to perhaps use that to gather the kids to come to our VBS. And one of the leaders of the Boys and Girls Club on the reservation said, we need somebody to come in here and talk about Jesus because these kids need help. So this trip, we were able to do the physical labor, build the relationships. There are lots of incredible testimonies 
that you can ask our youth group kids about that they will share or Stacy and I would would love to share. And so we were able to lay the groundwork hopefully toward the end of going back and ministering to them on a yearly basis. And we thank you for supporting us um, and for helping us to fill all those blessing bags and for praying for us. We, Stacy and I, were really underqualified to do most of the physical labor tasks that we were asked to do in terms of like painting. We had no idea what we were doing, and yet God provided the Switechs, who are house flippers, who do this for a living, who knew, who had incredible expertise in all of the areas, and just happened to be bringing all of the stuff that we needed that we had not even foreseen. Um, so God provided through them in incredible ways, and it was an incredible trip. Thank you for your support, and we hope that you will pray for us moving forward as we plan for future mission trips. Thank you, Katie. Uh, stand with me if you would, and we'll pray and be, uh, continue in worship. Father, of course we need you. We, uh, you could tell us what to do, but our minds don't understand it, and our bodies can't do it, and our emotions can't do it, and our wills can't even begin to do it. We need you, Father. We need you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us and come here and meet with us and transform us into the image of your Son. And we know and trust that you'll do this because you've promised us that when we ask this in your name, you will. And so we're praying you, God, uh, be with us this morning for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence, we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we've sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from 1 John chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. Christ alone, 
Psalmist from Psalm 121, which is one of the ascent psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. So, uh, Lamentations 3 is uh, uh, where our reading comes from, Old Testament reading comes from this morning. Lamentations, if you're familiar with it, it's a book written by, usually said, a Jeremiah. As Jeremiah looks out over the destroyed city of God and the destroyed temple of God and ponders the question, where is God in the middle of suffering? Especially when God's own people and God's own city have been destroyed. It's actually quite heartbreaking, the book. It's not, it's not that much fun to read, honestly. You should do it embedded right in the middle of lamentation, in the middle of what is basically hopelessness, is this sweet little chunk of the gospel 
where Jeremiah confesses God wins in the end. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ. And our reading is drawn from that this morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They're new every morning. And then Jeremiah can't help it. He breaks into prayer directly to God. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from 2 Corinthians 8. We've been reading through 2 Corinthians. When you get to chapter 8, you kind of get to Paul's main point, which is this. If we have benefited as Gentile Christians from the Jewish Messiah's death and resurrection and now reign over all things, one of the best ways that we can confess that we owe our salvation to the King of the Jews is to raise money and send it back to Jerusalem to support the saints who are in Jerusalem who are struggling with this famine that's ravaging the Near East at that time. And what he's going to do here is he's going to say the churches in Macedonia, which is just north of Corinth, have done such a great job. You do not want them to do better than you. It's a little bit of friendly and loving competition here. He's like, you guys excel in everything. Don't let them excel you in generosity to the saints. That's what's going on here in our text. Paul says... We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Titus had gone to Macedonia to make the collection there in Macedonia. And he's, Paul said, I'm sending Titus to you and I want him to, to finish what he started there in collecting this uh, gift for the saints. But as you excel in everything, verse 7, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and you excel in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, the earnestness of the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Literally in Greek, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Kalathakumi, that's uh, Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. That sounds real kind of, uh, you know, sort of like very uh, pastoral and fancy. Actually, it's, it's more colloquial that it's more like, little girl, time to wake up. It's more like that. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Okay, you may be seated. Um, and I'm just going to warn you right off the bat. That this, uh, so I'll go as fast as I can, but this might be a tad, uh, just a tad longer than normal. Not a whole lot longer, but just a tad normal. I'm just warning you so that, that when you sense the frustration coming on, you can just say, well, he said this was going to happen. And you can be forgiving me in advance. It's a super powerful story. Uh, this, uh, and it's long too. This is one of the reasons why it's going to be long. And there's a lot. There's just a lot in here. It's, um, you know, heaven to earth, Christ to the people, gift of the future now flowing to me. It's the new creation. The story is about the new creation coming forward out of the new creation and doing things in space and time right now that's purely new creation stuff. People being healed, people being raised from the dead, relationships being reconciled, stuff that's only supposed to happen when 
Christ returns, and he's yanking it out of that and putting it into space-time. Powerful story. Okay, so uh, we had one of these a couple of weeks ago. It's not the last time we're going to have one of these, and Mark, Mark likes these kind of things. Uh, there's, uh, I think in the lectionary this year, there's three or four uh, frame stories that Mark has. A frame story is, it begins with, uh, it's two stories. It begins with the first story, then the first story stopped and cut off, and then it moves to the second story, and then the first story, when the second story is done, the first story comes back and finishes. It's almost like a sandwich, right? San, uh, story one being the bread and story two being the meat. And one of the reasons why Mark does this is because he's trying to make the point that these stories go together and they interpret each other and the meanings all sort of enmesh. And I'll kind of show you what we mean as we go along. As I go, that's why it's a little bit longer is because it's a longer story and it's two stories and they fit together. And so it's, it's just going to take me a little bit longer than the usual time to, to do this. So let me just jump right into it. There's three things I kind of want to point out from this text today about the kingdom of God coming here among us, and it's this. It's just three really broad things here. I want to talk about how, or what, I want to talk about what the kingdom accomplishes. What does the kingdom do? What's it for? What's happening? That Je- what does it mean that Jesus is now the king of the universe? What's going on in space and time that this is happening? Second, how does Jesus do this? How does the kingdom come? And then third of all, how can you and I participate in it? How can the kingdom life be our life? There's going to be an active element to this, of course, like how can we be on mission? There's also a passive element, like how can I receive the benefits of the kingdom of God? And those two, of course, aren't separate things, but they go hand in hand, okay? So first of all, let's talk real quick if we can. Let's go as quick as possible and talk about what the kingdom accomplishes. Of course, the main thing that you notice when you read the story is that the kingdom of God, the gospel, is doing physical things, right? Somebody who's been sick for a long time is healed physically. Somebody who is dead physically, of course, is healed and and, and brought back to life physically. The kingdom of God is doing physical things here. And we we could talk about this sort of thing. and We we will. Of course we will, but not not this morning. I want to point out something else because, like I said, there's just so much here. Uh, There's also economic healing going on. You see, the woman who had, had been so sick for so long, verse 26, she'd suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Uh, many of you uh, have experienced that. And uh, no offense to our physicians who are here uh, right now, but listen to this. I'm not going to make eye contact with you because I feel embarrassed saying that. But some of you have no, known what it means to suffer under the hands of many physicians. Not that the physicians are making you suffer, but you, know, you go to the doctor and it's just not getting better. And it's, that's a part of the whole agony, is like wanting to get better, wanting to know, and it not happening, and spending all that she had. She had cleaned out her savings to get physical relief, and it just hadn't happened. And Jesus fixes that as well. Of course, there's the psychological, uh, the frustration of you know, going through that for 12 years, the, the physical pain and discomfort, the social pain, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, the psychological trauma that Jairus and his wife experience as their daughter's dying, the, psych, the, the psychological trauma that a 12-year-old experiences when she's dying, we don't know if she knew if she was dying or not. All this is like very, very painful. But the one thing I do want to point out, I mean, Jesus fixes it, right? But the one thing I want to point out from the text this morning is that Jesus uh, fixes the social trauma. The, the gospel, the kingdom of God, repairs and restores relationships. It repairs and restores relationships. Uh, Two big, broad things underneath that category that I want to talk about for a few minutes. It restores broken relationships, and it creates new relationships 
new, unexpected, unanticipated relationships that you did not know could happen, but because of the gospel they do. You guys know this. This is, um, this is review for most of you here. The gospel being about repaired and restored relationships is an intensely biblical theme. I, always, I feel bad because I'm doing this every Sunday now, but I just feel like i got to keep on beating this horse so that we're all clear about this. The gospel is not ever in the New Testament about how Jesus gets you to heaven when you die. Never. It's never mentioned. Heaven when you die is mentioned three times, and it's only like, it's like two and a half verses in the entire New Testament to talk about. It is not a major theme. Instead, the New Testament focuses like crazy on all kinds of good new creation themes. Jesus died and rose from the dead to renew creation. And part of that theme, heavily invested in by the New Testament writers, is this new people that God is creating. And I know we've done this before, but can I just give you a couple of quick proof texts for those of you who are still hanging on the edge of like, no, I think it's about me going to heaven. Let me just, I just want to, quick emphasis for here, just let me proof text for a second. Ephesians 2.14, Jesus came, Jesus has made, Jesus came and died to make us both, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, make us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new human in place of the two. That's what Jesus is doing. He's creating a new humanity, a new family. He's not saying here, okay, so you guys don't get along in the early church. Jewish, you know, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, you just don't get each other. You know, different traditions. You guys are conservative. You guys are, are contemporary. You, know, you guys are liturgical. You guys are relaxed. You guys are theological. You guys are emotional. You know what? Just different churches. Because you're going to go to heaven when you die, and you're going to go to heaven when you die, and let God sort it out then. Paul insists, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, God has decided to send Jesus to break down the walls of hostility and to create one new human that he might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross. It's about reconciliation. Reconciliation to God and reconciliation to each other. The gospel unites those of us who can't be united on the basis of common interest. That's how powerful the gospel is. Two more proof texts, Titus 2.14. Jesus gave himself for us in order to Take you to heaven when you die? No, in order to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He wanted a new family, united. There's no Jew nor Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no uh, male nor female. Every, every tongue, every tribe gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. Another voice, Peter's voice, 1 Peter 2.9. When he describes what salvation means, he's referring back to Exodus 19. He says, you guys are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who've called him, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus saved us to bring him glory. He didn't save us as individuals primarily to bring him glory. He saved us to create us to a new glory-giving kingdom of priests, holy nation. That's what he wants, a holy nation. So that's what we're talking about this morning. And this story is, you hardly notice this as Americans because we're so into like, what is Jesus doing for me? that we hardly notice the restored relationship in here. But let me point it out to you if I can. Relationships that were broken that are now restored. What about this poor woman? 12 years with this flow of blood. In the book of Leviticus, uh, you can go back and read it. Uh, you ought to go back and read it. It's not that pleasant. First of all, it's boring, and also it's kind of gross. There's a series of laws called, which very, very politely are called flux laws in the book of Leviticus, which basically just means this. If you have some sort of liquid oozing out of your body, you cannot 
worship with God's people. It, does, it could, could be blood, could be urine, could be pus. Probably keep on going saying gross things, but you guys get the point. It doesn't mean that you're somehow immoral. It doesn't mean that you're somehow less important than the other Israelites. It just means that you're ritually unclean. Go get cleaned up. Once the flow of whatever liquid's coming out of your body stops, do the purification rites, and then you can come back in. This poor woman has had uterine bleeding for 12 years. What does this mean? This means she's not allowed to go to temple during the festivals. She's not allowed to go to synagogue and worship with God's people. She actually is breaking the law by even showing up at the seaside with everybody else to try to get to Jesus. Because if she bumps into somebody, if they accidentally touch her, they are ritually unclean themselves until the next day, and they got to do the purification rites. So, like a leper, stay outside the camp. That's how she spent her life. We don't know too much about her life, but certainly she hasn't experienced marital intimacy for 12 years. We're not told this directly, but the odds are really, really high that if she was married beforehand, she's divorced now. That is grounds for divorce in the Mishnah. She's probably, no doubt, the most lonely person that you could imagine who actually lives in sight of other human beings. And when she, when she comes to Jesus to get healed, what's happening to her is that she, it's, it's not just that she's getting rid of the physical discomfort. It's not just that she's getting rid of this thing that's taken away all of her money. She's actually being restored back to human relationship. And this is why Jesus says this in verse 34. He heals her, and then he says to her, you know, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. That Go in peace. I know that that's, I say that at the end of every service, and it's kind of a, it's pastor speak for, you know, the service is over. You guys can leave now, is what it sounds like, right? But actually, go in peace means live your life in, live your life in shalom. It's not just live your, shalom is not just like, you know, feel good about yourself or just be calm. It's like peace, healed relationship. You, lady, are now allowed to go to a synagogue. You're now allowed to come back to the marketplace. You are now allowed to have communication. You are now allowed to have human contact with other human beings. You can have that. He's restoring that relationship. That's what the gospel does. Of course, the most, uh, you know, not, not, to, uh, not to give Jairus credit where credit's due, this is actually the most extreme example of fractured relationship, right? This is w- way worse than a fight with your sister. This is way worse than an argument with the neighbor. This is way worse than a church split. Jairus' daughter dies and she's gone. Yes, Jesus brings back to life a girl who died. That's super important. I'm just not emphasizing that this morning, okay? But what he's doing is he's giving a mother and daughter who are mourning, mother and, a father and mother who are mourning their daughter, he's giving them that relationship that they knew was gone. He's giving that back to them. All of us can sense like how dramatic, we all can sense like what the woman went through on, to a small scale, right? There are times when you feel alone or ostracized or that you don't belong. And to be in an instant, giving that back. We all know, you, you, you guys either know what it's like to lose a child or the fear of losing a child. And the hope that that fear, that that reality could somehow be reversed is super powerful. Jesus, the gospel, the kingdom, reconciles broken relationships. It also creates new, unthought of relationships, relationships that you could never have anticipated, which is one of the reasons why these two stories are sandwiched together. Because you, are, you and I are intended to compare Jairus with the woman who comes for healing. So, so the daughter gets raised, right? But she's actually 
not the main character in that part of the story. It's actually Jairus. The daughter doesn't really have any lines. It's Jairus is the main character. So what Mark wants you to do is to compare these two people. And they could not possibly be different. It's one of the reasons why Mark puts these stories together. First of all, Jairus is a man. And uh, she is a woman. And in that culture, you guys are are aware of this. I've, I've mentioned this enough. Women are considered, I'm not exaggerating, less than less than uh, men, of course, right? Like, uh, somehow, somehow subhuman. I, I've, I've quoted you before in here the, the Jewish morning prayer that men during Jesus' time would pray. God, I, every morning, God, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Because women were second-class citizens. They had a specific function, which was to make babies and to raise babies. They weren't allowed to learn to read. They weren't allowed to study Torah. They had their own private section in synagogue. Uh, stay over there and please be quiet. Uh, they were not allowed to participate. This is why Jesus' ministry to women is radical. This is why Martha is shocked that Mary is sitting there at the feet of Jesus like a disciple. What are you doing? Get her out of there. Send her back to the kitchen with me. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way this is going to work now. Mark wants you to be able to have in mind that this is a man we're talking about and a woman. Okay, This is completely two opposite ends of the social spectrum. On top of that, it's clearly a man of social standing. He's the leader of the synagogue. And she's clearly an outcast woman. To, to emphasize this, you do, we don't know who this woman is, but we do know who the man is. Mark gives him a name, Jairus. He has an identity. This woman has no identity. She's just the person who's supposed to be away from us. Very, very opposite, right? One is bold. He is bold. He's confident. He has the confidence of a man who knows that he owns the town. Not that he's not, like he's desperate for help, right? But he's got the boldness to walk, walk right through the crowd of people and go to Jesus. Whatever else is going on, going on say, Jesus, you got to come with me right now. My daughter's sick. She has no boldness. All she has is shame. She slinks in there. She tries to be secret. She doesn't want anybody to see who, who she is. And when she finds out that Jesus knows that she did something, fear and trembling is the word that Mark uses to describe her emotional state. He's bold and she's scared. Of course, he's the ruler of the synagogue, right? She's not even allowed in the synagogue. They can't, be, they can't possibly be any more opposite. Another interesting feature here that I want to point out to you is the interesting, it's, it's very interesting that Mark, whenever you see something like this, start asking yourself the question, why? Why is he giving me that detail? Frequently in the gospel stories, if a detail is unnecessary, the gospel writer will just say, she had had this sickness for many years. Why does, why does, why does Mark tell us specifically that it was 12 years? Um, uh, up in verse, hold on, I can't find it now, uh, verse 25. Why does Mark say it's 12 years? Well, you don't really know for sure until you get down to verse 42. And when Jesus raises the girl from the dead, there's this weird parenthetical insertion. She was 12 years of age. And it's at that point that you realize that the year that this woman started to struggle with this horrible disease, the cycle of like, okay, I'm going to get help for this. Oh, maybe, maybe somebody else can help me. Well, let's try something else. Well, okay, we got to dip into some money and pay for this, and that didn't work. The years that this happened, and the years that she was increasingly ostracized from this community, that the year that that started was the year that Jairus and his wife gave birth to this girl who they undoubtedly loved and were incredibly proud of. The years of her misery were the years of their joy. Chronic, dull pain, growing and growing and growing until she couldn't stand it anymore. 
until she ran the risk of violating the law to get help. Twelve years of joy and bliss until the day when they noticed that something was wrong. They thought, well, maybe she should go to bed early. Just give her something to eat and let's, let's let her rest for a little bit. And then they realized that this is actually something bigger than this. And then they realized in just a short time that there's big trouble here and that she's going to die. They're both, the, the, the story that God is writing about their lives is synced up in such a way that their troubles, however different that they are, their stations in life, however different that they are, they're, they're welcome in that community, however different that it is, are about to meet the tipping point in the carpenter from Nazareth. And that brings us to the similarities. As different as they are, as, as widely divergent as they are, Jesus is about to do the exact same thing for both of them, which is to restore relationship with their, you know, Jairus with his daughter, she with her family, with her community, but also to unite the both of them together. There you are, you're Jairus. Imagine that you're Jairus. And you race to Jesus on the seashore, and you're just desperate. You're just desperate because you know that this guy has the power to heal sick people. You've heard the stories. You maybe have even seen it yourself. And he just arrived on shore. Is this a coincidence? Like, he just showed up in my town. And so you sprint out to find him, and you're like, Jesus, you got to come with me and help me. And he comes with you. And he's cutting through the crowd, and then all of a sudden, he's behind you, and you hear him stop and say, hold up, someone touched me. And you, like the disciples, are like, no kidding, dude. Like, everybody's touching everybody. We're crammed shoulder to shoulder here. What's up with you? Let's go. And then he's like, no, I need to find out who this is. And in the Greek, in, in, in the Greek it's, it's, uh, it's an imperfect, you don't need to know that. But what it basically means is that Jesus was looking and looking and continuously, like, he kept looking. Who did this to me? And the disciples are like, what do you, like, who cares? Like, we're all running into each other. And then, the, then Jesus finds the woman. And to, no doubt to Jairus' dismay, he decides to have a conversation with this woman who's not even supposed to be there. Like She's not even allowed to be there. And Jesus is sitting here to, like, while his daughter is dying. And on top of that, once the conversation is over, and okay, let's go, at that exact moment, somebody walks up and says, I'm sorry, like she died. There's really nothing we can do. Like, just let him go back. There's nothing, you know, this thing's over. Jesus is going to do, so first of all, Jairus has to wait on the outcast. The leader of the synagogue has to wait until Jesus cares for the woman that nobody else cares about. But, but the benefit to him is that when Jesus turns to him in that moment, surely, like moment of desperate grief, and says to him, don't be afraid, just believe, he's got to know, okay, like, I, I got I to be in on this because I just saw this guy heal this woman that for 12 years has been sick. Jesus does the same thing for both of them, but he does it in such a way that he elevates the one who was lowered and he raises the one who was high. And that's a classic biblical new creation theme. Hannah sings about it in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary echoes it in the Magnificat. Lord, you are the one who makes low the rich and raises up the poor. You are the one who makes, makes low the prideful and raises up the humble. And that's what Jesus is doing. But he's doing it in a way that benefits both of them. He's doing it in a way to say the way that you guys have lived your life up till now, okay, that's cool. You guys wanted to do that. But now you are going to be equals. Now think about this. From now on in that village, for the rest of that woman's life and for the rest of Jairus' life, whenever the story of the day when their lives were given back to them was told, 
they were always together. It was always, do you remember what happened with those two? It was always that. There's a relationship there. She's allowed into his synagogue again. They are now fellow worshipers where once they weren't even allowed to be in contact with each other. God is restoring a relationship that they couldn't possibly have imagined. He's making a new relationship. So we've been looking at Philemon in the adult Bible study. And I'll just make this real quick. Some of you have been in there. Um, Paul tells Philemon, your slave Onesimus is coming back. I want you to receive him. I want you to take him back and not be like, okay, here's your slave. He's sorry. Just let him work it off. You know, try to be gentle. But he's saying, no, he's coming back and now he is your brother. Slavery can't exist. When the master and the slave are brothers, slavery can't exist. Paul just destroyed slavery. How do you do it? Not by like tweeting, I'm coming out against slavery. Hashtag, you know, free the Gentiles or whatever. He's like, the gospel does it. The gospel actually restores and repairs relationships that couldn't possibly have existed before. That's what's going on here. I got to tell you, one of the best things I like about St. James, and there's a ton of things I love about you guys, is that some of you, some of you have explicit stories of now attending church with people who, uh, in the past, you did not like each other. And you have explicit stories of walking up to somebody and saying, will you forgive me? And them saying, yes, will you forgive me? That's not possible. Some of you lived in those relationships and you know that that was not going to happen unless the gospel's a real thing. So, so a, lot, a lot of you, not all of you, some of you are coming along on this journey and you're, 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 you're slow and we're waiting for you and we're patient and we love you. But a lot of us have decided we're going to live life together. We're not going to be American Christians. We're not going to come here and do the church thing and then go home and lay. see you next Sunday. We're going to live life together. And one of the, one of the, uh, one of the side effects of that is friction. One of the side effects of that is like butting heads, right? Because anytime, you, anytime your kingdom comes in con- contact with my kingdom, there's going to be friction. It, the, 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 the juicy gospel pleasure of that is, is that a lot of you have experienced what it means to say, hey, will you forgive me? Like, the world doesn't do this. The world doesn't say, I'm going to carry your hurt for you. you. You hurt my feelings, but you know what? I'm going to wear that. I'm going to swallow that up inside myself and carry that so that you and I can have a relationship. I love that about you guys. That's what the gospel does. That's what the kingdom of God is doing here. It's restoring these relationships. Okay, that was the longest point. Okay, that was the first point. It's by far the longest one and the most detailed one. Let's get to the next two. How does the kingdom come? How does this happen? Purely, purely by the power of Jesus. Verse 30 30 brings this out really cool. Jesus perceiving, this is the woman touches him, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. You know what's cool about that is that it's, it's, it's not even that Jesus is actively willing her to be healed. It's that Jesus' power is so great that even his clothing becomes a conduit for that salvation. Even just, just by like touching him, she's completely healed of 12 years of misery. It's only the power of Jesus. So look, okay, so you, you come to me. And this, you guys do this too, by the way. You come to me and you're like, hey, I need to talk to you. Like, I've been struggling with, like, this, whatever, this physical pain for a long, long time. And, I, you know, I'm, going, I'm seeing a doctor, and sometimes I get relief, and sometimes I don't. I'm not sure what's going on with that. But I'm just, like, in pain, and it's depressing. And, of course, my relationships are suffering because, like, I'm in a bad mood, and so the kids know I'm in a bad mood. And I kind of wish that I could, like, I try to, like, gut it out and be happy for them. But it's just the pain is so bad. And, and you know what I say to you? I say, like, blah, 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 advice, blah, 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 comfort. 
blah, 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 trust Jesus. All good stuff, by the way. I shouldn't say blah, 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 because it's all important. But all I've got for you really is like advice. You know, some of you have come and said to me, hey, somebody super close to me has passed away, and I just can't, I can't sleep at night. Like, I'm just crushed with grief. And I, I say the same thing. I was like, well, let's pray about this, you know, and let's, let's try and focus ourselves on the resurrection of Jesus and comfort and hope. And like, I'm basically just giving you advice. Jesus doesn't give advice. He doesn't even actually talk to the woman. He actually doesn't even know what's happening. He just fixes things. The gospel is not advice. The gospel fixes things. So Christianity is not, you guys know this, right? Christianity is not a philosophy. Jesus did not come to teach us how to like be right with God. He didn't come to teach us how to love each other better. All these things he, he, he did, they're secondary things, right? He didn't come to teach us how to be better friends or better children or better parents or whatever. Jesus came to fix things. It's pure gospel power. And wherever Jesus goes, stuff gets healed. Relationships get healed. Souls get healed. Bodies get healed. Minds get healed. Wherever Jesus goes, it happens. That's just gospel power, right? Now, um, there's a, let me do this. There's three things in here where that power can point us towards the cross. There's three hints of it here. where It's actually it's the power of the cross that's doing this, okay? First of all, to go back to verse 30, Jesus senses um, that power had gone out from him. He perceives in himself that power had gone out from him. So what does this mean? The image there is a little bit like Jesus is like topped off with power. Then he heals somebody and the power kind of dips down and he's like, okay, I need to like go pray to my father and get, you know. That's actually not what's going on. Jesus is God. He can heal whoever he wants to right then. But the image is very evocative in that it's kind of pointing. A little tiny echo. If you've read the whole Gospel of Mark, you know where it's headed. That Jesus is someday going to lose all of his power. And, and not just heal a woman who's been sick for 12 months, but to heal the entire universe. All the power in him is going to be drained out, but that act is going to be the most powerful thing he ever did. That's the first little pointer towards the cross, right? Here's the second one. Jesus touches this woman. You know the law? I just, I just talked about the Levitical flux law. Jesus touches this woman, and so he legally is now unclean. He has to step away. He has to go home. Sit at his house, don't talk to anybody, don't touch anybody. Next day, go see the, go to the synagogue, do the, the purification rites, get the okay, and then he can go back. He's, he's ritually unclean because he touched this woman. Also, he, he grabs the little girl's hand, right? He touches a dead body. That's the same as the flux laws, is that um, you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Jesus is unclean. He legally should be unclean, right? But would you check that out? He actually doesn't get unclean because his cleanness is so strong that it overcomes their uncleanness. It's supposed to be that their uncleanness makes him unclean, but his cleanness is so strong it makes them clean. This is what happens on the cross, right? He becomes the outcast. He becomes the unclean one. He becomes the one who's covered in his own flux so that you and I can be healed. He's the one who becomes marginalized so that you and I can be restored. He also, become, he also gets shamed. You know, he goes, he goes to Jairus' house, and there's the professional mourners. That's not weird, by the way, in that culture. Um, um, the, the Mishnah says, even a, poor, even a poor person should save up money to hire uh, one flute player and at least two dancers when a loved one dies to do professional mourning. Why would they do professional mourning? Um, because if you can hire people to wail and weep, it creates, I know it's weird, it creates emotional space and actual aural space for you to weep and it not be like this big, noticeable, I'm shamed thing. You can pay people to do it for you. 
Jesus walks in and says, basically, I'm going to fix this. And they laugh at him. They scorn him. And, and, and he moves on. But he's been publicly shamed, publicly humiliated. Of course, this is what happens on the cross too, right? He's nailed up, naked, to die in a culture where nudity is not a thing. It's not an acceptable thing. Jesus is covered with his own blood so that we could have our flux healed. Jesus is publicly shamed so that we could have glory and honor. Jesus is publicly marginalized so that we could have community. Jesus is publicly powerless so that we could have the power of the gospel. Jesus dies and rises from the dead to do all this new kingdom stuff. Okay, that's how the kingdom comes. It comes through Jesus. Now, how can you and I access this? I want to sit down for just a few minutes here on verse 36. Um, They come and tell Jairus, your daughter's dead. Just let Jesus go because he can't do anything. And Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. So first of all, believe. Jesus is... uh, um, Jesus wants Jairus to know that his power is unlimited. Jairus already knows that Jesus is powerful. Jairus already knows that Jesus can heal terminally ill girls, right? But once she's dead, then like, who can help that? It's like the, um, I, I used this example before. It's maybe not a good one, but whatever. Uh, you know, Superman uh, TV show when I was a kid watching a Superman TV show, and there's a plane that's about to crash, and then Superman flies. And just before the plane hits the ground, he flies up underneath the plane and grabs it and then lifts it up and makes it land safely. right? And so Superman, he's strong enough to save people who are about to die. Imagine a Superman show, though, where the plane hits the ground and explodes and everybody's killed, incinerated in a second. What does Superman do then? Nothing. That's like over his pay grade. Right? So the temptation is to think of Jesus as some kind of superhero. Like You can do really strong stuff but death, like nobody can, like, that's, you just got to walk, you just got to move away, you know, start grieving. And Jesus just says, don't be afraid, but believe. Because there's not a single thing in the universe that's outside of Jesus' pay grade. He can fix everything and anything. And that, in fact, is what the new creation and the kingdom of God is all about. But what does it mean, believe? What does it mean to have faith? I'm just going to say this for a second, because we've been talking about this a lot recently. What does it mean in this story? Does it mean, I, I know. Like, I'm confident that Jesus can save me. Does that woman look like a confident person to you? I mean, she's, she knows that Jesus is going to heal her, but she's slinking and she's ashamed. This fear and trembling is what describes her, right? She's not like, yes, victory in Jesus. Fear and trembling. What was faith for her? Was it some like, you know, did she study her small catechism and, and be like, yes, this makes sense to me? No, faith was just like, I just kind of want to touch the side of that guy's shirt. If I can just like touch his shirt, I'll be cool. That's all it was. Jairus, what about him? Like he's just desperate. That's what he is, he's desperate. Like it it comes out clear in the Greek, like come now, like my daughter's about to die. All he does is just walk behind Jesus. That's all he does. Faith is, is, is not like intellectual assent. Faith is not an emotional experience that you have. Faith is not a decision that you make. Faith is just like, I don't have any hope that anything's going to work except for Jesus. That's saving faith. But here's the weird part, and I want to, let me point this out to you. This phrase here, do not fear, only believe. Do you think that that's a weird thing to say to somebody whose daughter just died? Do not fear, only believe. Like, sh- shouldn't he say, don't grieve, only believe, because I'm about to raise your daughter. Like, don't grieve. 
Like, you know, be calm. Don't be so sad. He doesn't, though. He says, don't fear. Only believe. Why does he say, don't fear? Don't be afraid. Only believe. Let me tell you why, and it's not going to make any sense, and let me explain it. Here's why he says this. Because Jesus is not primarily interested in just raising Jairus' daughter. That's, that's, he's going to do that. He's more interested in reorienting, reorienting Jairus' values, goals, and identity around himself. Jesus is less interested in raising Jairus' daughter than he is in reorienting Jairus around a new set of identity, goals, and values. What does that mean? Well, just, just practically speaking, Jairus' daughter is going to die at some point. This is not like, it's just a staving off of the grief, right? It's super valuable. You know, you know that Jairus is in love with Jesus for doing it, but it's a temporary fix. The permanent fix is for Jairus to stop placing his hope in family values and start placing his hope and finding his identity in Jesus. That's why Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Let me tell you what I mean. Some of you have read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. He wrote it right after his wife died. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's not completely full of hope. There's a lot of desperation in there too. In fact, uh, Lewis published it underneath a pseudonym because basically Lewis's faith was shaking when his wife passed away. But the first line of that book goes like this. Lewis says, no one ever told me before that grief felt so much like fear. No one ever told me before that grief felt so much like fear. And he goes on to describe like the fluttering inside your chest. You know, the, the fluttering that you feel whether you just found out that you have cancer or you're sitting in the ante room to the principal's office when you're a kid and you know you're about to go in in a few minutes. That fluttering in your chest that you feel, that's grief, it's also fear. It's all, that's the, what Lewis felt when his wife died was this like antsiness, this like something bad's gonna happen. Now there's a, a psychologist uh, named Samantha Smithstein, and she's reflecting on this line in, in uh, A Grief Observed, and she says this. Here's, the th here's what Lewis means. Grief isn't just loss. It's not, you know, you just don't lose the daughter. It's not just loss. Grief is also about becoming untethered. You know, you have this little girl that you love, and she's the center of your world. This is the way we talk about our kids, right? And, and, and when she's gone and the center can no longer hold, you drift. There's really, and, and those of you who've gone through this, those of you who've lost one, somebody, a spouse or a child or somebody really close to you, will know that you feel completely at sea. Like there's no more meaning. There's no more order or shape to the universe. You know why? Because you've been untethered. The loss doesn't just make you sad. The loss makes you lost. It's actually literally an identity, identity crisis. Smith Stein goes on. It's about losing an identity. It's about losing who you are, losing a map and a compass all at once. The way that you oriented your life, she says, is now gone and there is no more center. Whatever it is that when you lose it, the center's gone and the meaning is gone. It could be a significant other. It could be a child. But by the way, like, I'm not saying so don't care about your child or your significant other. I'm not saying that either. It could be your job. It could be your status in the community, whether it's your junior high class or whether it's your, you know, the local men's club or your, you know, the, 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 fellow, uh, the fellow executives in the office or whatever it is, your fellow teachers, whatever it is. Losing your status there, losing your money, losing your job, losing your loved ones. 
that thing that when you lose, it will completely untether you, that is actually your God. We all have these. None of us are exempt from this. And when Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, just believe, he is saying, you will never lose the thing that tethers you to reality as long as you have me. Because he knows what that man is grappling with is not grief, but he's grappling with the fear that comes from losing all the meaning in your life. This is what Jesus wants you to have. You're going to lose loved ones. You know, Lewis also says in A Grief Observed that he uh, you know, passes couples in the street. After, he, after his wife passed away, he would pass couples in the street, friends of his, and he would see on their faces as they passed him. He says the fear that one of them is going to have to bury the other one at some point. The fear that your child is going to die. The fear that you're going to lose your job. The fear that people are going to find out that you're not as funny or smart that you think you are. The fear that everybody's going to know that you are the great pretender. Jesus is here, and one of the things he's doing here is he's saying, let yourself be untethered from all those things. Tether yourself to me. I'll give you all those things back. Your daughter will never die again. Your sickness will go away. But you'll only get those things back if I'm at the center. If I am the reality, if I am the one true God. And he doesn't just tell you to do that. He actually makes it happen by healing us. Stand with me and let's pray. Then let's have communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the life-giving God. Thank you for being the sickness-healing God. You know, Lord, that we find our compass and our maps and so many other things besides you. God, so many good things, so many things that you've given us, so many gifts. Jesus, make yourself the center. Make yourself the meaning. Make yourself the identity. Make yourself the universe. God, help us to trust and rely on you, that you are the one who makes Easter forever, that you are the one who brings the gift of the future to us, who brings us to the gift of the future. Help us to find our meaning and hope in you, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you so much for the trip uh, that the youth group and um, the other people went on this past week and for the gift of the future that they got to experience and uh, life in you, life in community, life in mercy. Uh, Father, may it, may it remain with them. May they uh, be filled up with uh, this vision of new creation, this vision of your glory, this vision of your hope for humanity, and may it fuel them, may you Use them to fuel the rest of us to be on your mission too. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for our sister LCMS churches and pray that as your gospels preach this morning and as your uh, people praise your name in song and in uh, prayer and in uh, scripture and in communion, that you would make yourself real and evident there. We also pray for all of our sister gospel-believing churches here in Edwardsville and Glencarbon. God, as always, like show us, please. Show us the power of your kingdom here in Glen Carbon. May we see it grow. May we see it expand. May we see your name glorified more and more. May we see relationships restored. May we, may we see illness, mental and physical illness healed. May we see people moved from alienation to welcome. Uh, Father, may you do all these things for your own glory. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you are the life-giving God who has spoken the word that's raised us up from the dead and made us alive in you and pulled us into your kingdom and called us your children and sanctified us and 
looked at the filthy, selfish human beings we are and says, those are my holy, perfect ones. And so we come not because we're holy and perfect, but because you say we're holy and perfect in your Son, Jesus Christ. We come with boldness to say, Jesus, have mercy on us. We're sinners. Jesus, bring your kingdom about. Jesus, give yourself glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. Confess with me if you can. The words of our, uh, the, uh, the, the words confessing our faith in the Nicene Creed, this is found in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and when one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around, find somebody you haven't talked to recently or somebody that you just want to build a relationship with and start doing that now. Go in peace.